The Tom Woods Show, episode 2263. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hey, everybody. We all know it is time for us to break up, but everybody's status quo bias is standing in the way of this obvious and humane solution. Check out my brand new ebook called National Divorce, The Peaceful Solution to Irreconcilable Differences, which you can get for free at nationaldivorce.com. Hey, folks, Tom Woods here. What a delight to have our old friend Michael Rechtenwald back with us on the show. As Scott Horton once said about me, it's starting to seem these days as if Michael is the author of every book that's ever been written at the rate he's releasing them. We will remember him because we've talked to him a number of times from his academic career teaching at NYU, liberal studies and global liberal studies. He's a distinguished fellow of Hillsdale College. You can check him out at michaelrechtenwald.com, spelled exactly the way you would think. And today, he has released yet another book, and this one is really the central book of our age. It's covering the most important thing going on in the world right now. And it's called The Great Reset and the Struggle for Liberty, Unraveling the Global Agenda. Welcome back, Michael. Hey, Tom. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, you and I have talked about this topic before, but there are many... It's like an octopus, this thing. There are so many parts to it. So I'm going to try to talk about different areas to supplement previous conversations. But of course, we have to begin with this very strange term, the Great Reset. Who wants to reset whatever it is? And what exactly are they resetting? So the who has to do with a number of globalists, but in particular, it's the World Economic Forum that launched this Great Reset, as it were. And this has to do with, of course, the founder and chair of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab. But then there are, as I show in the book, there are numerous globalist organizations that have been basically foisting this agenda on us for some time. And what they want to reset is the global economy in particular. And of course, This has to do a lot with our way of life, and they want to reset our way of life. So they want to reset the economy, and they want to reset us. They want to reset our behavior. They're looking to change our income, our prospects, our mobility, our consumption, our food consumption, all these habits that we have. They want all of this reset. And so they're attempting to dictate the terms of our lives through this reset. And they want to use technology to do it. And so there's that. And they also have some population issues they have on the agenda. They want to reset our reproduction. So, I mean, they're really after everything. Yeah, it is a multi-pronged thing because it's got so-called climate change at the center of it because that's the excuse. They always have some excuse. It's COVID, it's climate change, whatever to justify elite control of society. But there's a lot more to it. Then there's, as we've talked about before, there's stakeholder capitalism, the ESG stuff, the rating companies according to how well they comply with the demands of these shadowy figures. And they, you know, if Klaus Schwab ain't a shadowy figure, you just just look at this guy. This this is not a normal person. But then on top of that, you have a section in this book on... It was the very question I wanted to get answered, as a matter of fact. And I thought, doggone it, he's got a chapter on it. Namely, 
the woke issue. Now, of course, I know you've talked about woke capitalism, but in particular, you have a discussion of what is the connection between wokeness, which seems remote from a desire to reset the economy, but if the idea is really to to reset the way we think and look at the world, then maybe wokeness isn't so far removed from that kind of plan. So what is the actual connection between the woke fanaticism and what these people are up to in the Great Reset? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's one that I do answer in the book with a chapter on woke ideology after I treat all the economic ways of understanding this reset. I talk about wokeness, and I think wokeness is the ideological component that really works to affect the Great Reset. It has to, they need to reset people's psychology, their mindset, their self-esteem, their way of thinking of themselves. And wokeness, while it's been analyzed by many people and, you know, basically decried without any analysis at all as to what its function is, I tried to make clear what the function of wokeness is. And the function is to make It's really directed at the majority. It's not directed at those beleaguered or so-called subordinated people that it supposes to be championing. Really, it's directed at the majority, and the idea of wokeness is to make the majority feel undeserving of their lives, of their lifestyles, of their accomplishments, of their possessions, and so forth. So wokeness uses this idea of privilege that we're simply privileged for what we have, and therefore this privilege can be revoked. So this includes everything from our property to our rights, our other rights, our rights of mobility, of speech, and so forth. So that's the function of wokeness. It's the ideological component that's required to reset the mass mind so that it will accept the great reset in effect. So in a way... It's both mental and material, the ways they are going to be grinding you down. Yes. First, they're going to demoralize you. And then I guess most simultaneously with that, your material condition is going to be worsened. And this is what I think distinguishes this moment from previous ones. In the past, the side that wants to give the state all kinds of extra power would always do so, at least with some kind of semblance of a promise of an improved standard of living. And now it's like they're not even pretending. They're not even pretending they're going to make your life better. They're going to make your life worse, and they're going to somehow program you to be happy about that. Exactly. That's it in a nutshell in terms of what they're trying to do to program the mass mind in order to accept this great reset, to make you feel supposedly good about relinquishing your rights, relinquishing your property, because all of it was gained on the basis of privilege. Likewise, you don't deserve it, and you never did deserve it. And none of it is accruing to your merit. It has nothing to do with that. It's all based on your position, your race or your gender or some other privileged positionality that you have basically been accidentally born into. And this is makes it all the more reason why it can be revoked without any problem in terms of abrogating your rights, because these aren't really your rights. These are simply privileges that you've had all this time. When the World Economic Forum holds events, what's astonishing about them is how incredibly frank some of the attendees can be. Even when they know they're on camera, they know they're speaking into a live mic, 
And I mean, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. We get these clips where people are saying things that you can't believe they're saying. Yeah. That maybe it would be nice if we could somehow get a chip into everybody. And, you know, people talk about that. You say, oh, come on, you're full of it. These people just openly say, I think maybe in part because they feel invincible. And they also feel like if you start talking about it, you'll sound like the crazy one, even though they're the ones suggesting it. Absolutely. There's so many things there I want to say. One of the things I think they do is to basically sort of leave breadcrumbs for the conspiratorial thinker and to thereby elicit what they can then call conspiracy theories from people in order to detract and to utterly deflect criticism. This way, they basically have a way of detracting from their critics, basically disqualifying their criticism. So they actually, I think, try to generate these conspiracy theories on purpose. But the other thing is, yeah, they have said some outlandish things. I mean, at the last annual meeting, for example, Klaus Schwab said, we've, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, basically, we've had a, um, one of the worst viruses in the last hundred years, but we may have a worse virus on the agenda. And then he went on to say that the future is not just happening. The future is made by us in this room. So, I mean, he comes right out and suggests that they may have a virus on the agenda and that we're making the future, just as the conspiracy theorists suggest, that they're conspiring to make things happen and that they have things on the agenda. I mean, you've heard the term pandemic, of course, and that COVID-19 was planned and all that. I don't go that far, but I'm saying that these people literally try to give you the impression that they are conspiring to do these things. And I'm just left in shock when I read these people's own words. Because, you know, in the old days, you would read a conspiracy theorist and you'd say, all right, well, he's tying together a bunch of suppositions and unsupported claims and an isolated quotation from 58 years ago. And it's not very convincing. Now it's like an embarrassment of riches. Yeah. This one says this, this one says this. In fact, Let's take this opportunity to go back to something you said at the beginning about population. You have a very good section in your book, The Great Reset. Oh, I suppose it's The Great Reset and the Struggle for Liberty, in which you talk about the population question. And the thing is, people have to understand, this is not some wild conspiracy theory. This is a conspiracy fact. And these people have been extremely open about it. I mean, you have to give them credit. They have not hidden the fact that they think there are too many people and we need to do something about this. And by the way, you can find people going back to the ancient world, you know, classical civilization where they thought there were too many people. There's always people thinking there are too many because they only look at the question from one side. Right. They look at the question of people are just consumers. It's the same mentality that views people as nothing other than disease vectors. Right. All they are are consumers. So, of course, we want to have fewer of them. You're not putting words into their mouths. You're just letting them talk. Right. I mean, for example, Paul Ehrlich, who wrote The Population Bomb, I think it was 68, basically said straight up, we need to put sterilizers into the water supply and the food supply. And lest we think this guy is irrelevant and nobody cares what this nutcase thinks, he was just on 60 Minutes two weeks ago, spouting similar catastrophism about climate change. Meanwhile, his previous catastrophism was about global cooling. And of course, that didn't come to pass. 
So these people are just looking for the next crisis in order to exert utter and complete control. And in this case, over the population, this guy even suggested that in a subsequent book that they put like implants under people's skin that can turn off and on their reproductive capabilities. And these people are taken seriously. So yeah, they've been saying this for years. And of course, the United Nations has been at this for decades. They have been advocating abortion and forced sterilization for decades. And they have had population conferences that go back to the late 60s, where they're basically advocating all kinds of measures to reduce population. And that's interesting because this whole sustainability movement really rose out of this population control movement. So when you hear the word sustainability, you've got to remember that they're also talking about population control and reducing the population because they think the main driver of unsustainability is population and population, particularly in the developed world, because these people in the developed world, they said straight up in different places in UN's documents that it's the first world or the developed world consumption that is the most unsustainable for the planet. So we have to reduce population in the developed world because those people, when they grow up and they start eating and driving cars, they're causing the most unsustainable development. So they've made no bones about all this. It's all straight up on the table and it's been there for decades. Hey folks, quick sponsor message from one of the genuinely good guys out there. And that's my friend, Richard Grove. Richard and I want you to accomplish great things in 2023, but you can't do it if you haven't got your inner game right. Well, this very Sunday, January 15th, 2023 at noon Eastern, Richard is holding the Autonomy Mindset event. Autonomy is his fantastic group, by the way, which I've spoken to before. And what an audience of action-taking people who are committed to accomplishing great things. They're not defeatists who shoot down everything you suggest and think everything is doom and gloom. These are action-oriented people, and it's a wonderful community to be a part of. And you can attend the Autonomy Mindset event for either $0 or $47, your choice. During the free lecture, Richard's going to unveil how to build an anti-fragile, infinite growth mindset. And then you can put this mindset to work right away with a powerful interactive goal-setting workshop for just $47. Everybody attending this workshop will have gotten there from a good podcast like this one. So it means these people kind of know where things are at. So remember, the lecture is free, plus you can turbo boost the experience, if you like, with that goal-setting workshop for just $47. So head over to tomwoods.com slash mindset, and you'll be well on your way to an excellent new year. That's tomwoods.com slash mindset. Can you talk about what Agenda 2030 is? Yeah, Agenda 2030, it really is a spinoff from Agenda 21, and I won't go too much into Agenda 21, but Agenda 2030 came out of the climate change movement, in effect. It came out of the Paris Accord, and it was the set of recommendations in order to establish sustainable development. And it has a number of basic demands that it's making on the world population. And they are effectively like a number of points and subpoints that they really demand that have to happen in order to establish this sustainable development. And some of the points have to do with 
they, they're tricky about how they put things. For example, they talk about gender equity and gender equality. What they're really talking about there is actually population because they promote careerism exclusively for women because they believe that if you keep women in professional careers, they're less likely to have children. This is really what they're after. They made it clear throughout their many population panels and population meetings that they have had through the decades. So Agenda 21 is about sustainable development, and they have a number of things they're trying to attack in terms of sustainable development. They want to control the use of land. They want to control the use of the waterways. They want to control the use of basically everything. And they also want to alleviate poverty entirely. But really what this all comes down to is, again, they link these two terms, sustainability and equity. So one of the things they talk about is achieving equity between the developed and developing worlds. And the way they do that is not by fostering development in the developing world, but rather by basically bribing the developing world not to develop, using wealth transfers from the developed world to the developing world. So basically bribing the elite in these developing countries to keep them from producing unsustainable development. It's unbelievable. So everything they say sounds on the surface, it's all euphemistic doublespeak, really. What they really mean is something other than what they say in terms of the blatant or patent understanding of what they're getting at. There's always some sort of a twist to it. And it's never so altruistic as they suggest. All right. Another thing I want to make sure I cover with you is something that came up in a conversation I had recently with Derek Bros. Now, you have quite a bit of material in this book about the issue of technology. And I'm trying to think about what is the right way to think about the net pluses and minuses of technology? Because let's say around 2010, when... Basically, nobody was having a video removed from YouTube. We were all amazed that people with all kinds of points of view could just post videos and we would expect them, presumably, to stay up forever. It was a very different world then. And we looked at technology as the mechanism by which we would liberate ourselves from the state and its propaganda. But now it's not quite so clear. I mean, I'm not saying I want to go back to 1950, but it's not quite so clear, is it? So how do you sort out the pluses and minuses here? Well, I think that in particular about the sorts of technologies that are being rolled out under the rubric of the fourth industrial revolution, the basic way to understand it is a bait and switch routine. In other words, there's going to be a lot of promises connected to these developments and technologies, like, for example, brain cloud interfaces and different ways that the mind will be directly connected to the web so that you can access all the world's information without even lifting a finger at this point. All of these enhancements are going to be touted as basically leading to a superhuman capacity that'll make us effectively like gods. But I think it's a bait and switch routine because what they're going to switch us onto is basically a means by which they'll have far more control over us. And for example, with something less otherworldly, look at CBDCs, of course, they're going to tout this as a way of having convenience and 
everybody will have access to this digital currency and they'll even suggest that this will make wealth transfers a lot quicker so that needy people in disaster areas will be able to get money instantly, things like this. But as we know, the CBDC, the central bank digital currency, will lead to the total surveillance over spending, savings, and debt and give the central banks utter and complete control over our economic prospects. Similarly, things like digital identity, which they're touting as inclusive because it'll bring in some 1.1 billion people who have no access to identification. It'll bring them into the world system. But whenever you speak of having a total inclusion in the world system, you have to, (laughs) this word inclusion, it should trigger the term totalitarianism in your mind. Because anytime you want to include everybody in something, it's a totalizing system. In other words, it's totalitarian. So whenever they're talking about things like a digital identity, we must think that you know their inclusion means absolute control. The digital identity will be tied to the CBDCs, and it'll be another means by which you'll be basically surveilled from the cradle to the grave. And I mean, when we talk just about the internet itself, you know, I have traced the history of the internet and from its earliest conceptions by basically libertarian people like John Perry Barlow and others who really saw it as the the new commons, a new space for peer-to-peer unfettered interaction between persons and all that. So this was the promise, but these I don't know how else to put this. These control freaks, of course, saw it as an opportunity to gain complete control over people through surveillance and other mechanisms. So there's always this dialectic here where there's an offer and then the offer is kind of rescinded and and turns into its opposite, in effect. But, I mean, I'm not a technophobe. and I've made that clear in various places. I'm not a Luddite. I believe technology can work to our benefit and totally can be liberating. It just has to be rescued. It has to be wrested out of the hands of these dictatorial people. Right. That's basically what I think. And you need awareness among the public, at least among the awake public. And I don't mean woke, I mean awake. The awake public needs to be aware of the risks involved. Yeah. And what you're potentially sharing with the world and the information about you that's getting out there. And I think, by the way, there is more and more concern about that. I think that's actually becoming much more of a topic of conversation, internet privacy, stuff like that. I think that's more on the table than it was a few years ago. When we talk like this, though, I mean, you know what's coming. You have a section in here, a chapter, the question of conspiracy theory. Because if you talk like this, then you know, you're spreading conspiracy theories. Yeah. And you really went deep into this question of conspiracy theory. So I don't expect you to reproduce all that, but what should we think about that term, conspiracy theory? Okay, that's a great question. First of all, we should look at the history of that phrase. And I did a little deep dive into the first written use of that term that I could find. And it was a late 19th century dissertation or a commentary on a dissertation, actually. And it wasn't used in any way. The term conspiracy theories did not suggest that somebody should be dismissed on the basis of having floated a conspiracy theory. They just suggested that this theory didn't have enough evidence to support it. 
So there's never been anything wrong with conspiracy theory for the most part until roughly the 1940s when Karl Popper in his book, The Open Society and Its Enemies, used this phrase, the conspiracy theory of society, and discredited conspiracy theory on the basis of being bad sociology. In effect, it was a, a misunderstanding of human agency and he basically erected a straw man and then knocked it down. Nobody has suggested that there's a singular cabal that has complete control over everything and they're always successful and every conspiracy date and everything in society is a conspiracy. That's what he suggested the conspiracy theory of society was. Then he debunked it. Then the phrase then I believe was introduced by him as a pejorative and then I think picked up by the CIA in connection to the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And then the CIA began using that phrase to discredit everybody that was countering the official narrative. And that's how it got into this position of being used as a ready epithet to dismiss anybody who disagrees with official narratives. Now, then I go into a philosophical treatment of this, and I won't reproduce the whole thing, as you said, but in effect, Having gone through some philosophical disposition about this, I would say that it really boils down to this. There is nothing wrong with a theory for being a conspiracy theory per se. The question is whether it has sufficient evidence to support it. So we should basically let this term conspiracy theory run off us like water off of a duck. We should not allow it to ruffle our feathers and make us worried about what we're saying. I think we have to basically rebuff this phrase, just totally reject it and scoff at the use of it, really. The question isn't whether it's something of a conspiracy theory. The question is whether it's right, whether it's supported by evidence. Yeah, unfortunately, conspiracy theory has become like so many magic words in our society that all you have to do is utter them, right? and it's expected that the conversation will come to an end. Well, we just refuse to comply with that. Absolutely. Sorry, you're going to have to, I'm going to need a little bit more than your ex-cathedra pronouncement. You know, just uttering, barking words at me is not (laughs) really an answer to what I'm saying. So I want to know, tell me exactly which fact I've cited here is wrong. And by the way, I mean, when you think about the kind of people who are running the show in the U.S. outwardly, and then maybe pulling strings behind the curtains, these are some of the creepiest, most despicable underhanded people you can possibly imagine. Is it so hard to suppose that they might, in fact, be conspiring against you, that they might not, in fact, have your best interests at heart? Why is that so hard to believe? To me, that's the most obvious conclusion. It's unbelievable that people would not, they refuse to assign to the state nefarious intentions. Yeah, I don't know where they would get this from. And uh, the idea that an organization that would wrest money off of you basically through force, would not do anything else negative to you. Why would they do that? So it's just, it's unbelievable. And it's very, it's one of the hardest things to break through, especially with the left or whatever they are. You want to call these kinds of sock puppets that follow the regime. I don't know what else to call them at this point. But yeah, especially with them, it's very hard to break through on these points. If anyone on earth is going to conspire against me, it's these people. (laughs) You know, there's nobody else who's even in the running. It's going to be these people if if it's going to be anybody. 
Hey, folks, quick sponsor message. You and I know how often the conventional wisdom is just dead wrong. But it's not just wrong when it comes to economics and politics and so many issues we face as a society, but it's also wrong in what it advises us to do as individuals. And that is definitely true, especially in the United States, when it comes to healthcare. Even though everybody knows there's something seriously wrong with the system, everybody more or less goes along with it because I think a lot of them don't realize there's an option. Well, open enrollment is almost over, so now is the time to take charge of your healthcare decisions. And yes, we can do something about it with CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth has a better way than the broken insurance model to fund your healthcare costs. You see any doctor you want, no deductibles, exclusions, or co-pays. You pay only the first $500 of any healthcare event, CrowdHealth Community takes care of the rest. You pay one low monthly total to fund your account. That monthly subscription helps fund healthcare costs of the entire CrowdHealth community. All the perverse incentives that got American healthcare into its present mess are thereby reversed. Take charge of your healthcare today with CrowdHealth. Open enrollment is the only time you can hit eject on the broken system without penalty, so don't wait. And for a limited time, join for just $99 per month for your first six months when you go to joincrowdhealth.com woods. Open enrollment ends January 15th. So sign up today before it's too late. That's joincrowdhealth.com slash woods. CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It's a totally different way of paying for health care. Terms and conditions may apply. Let's say one more thing. You um, have a discussion of, obviously you talk a lot about the World Economic Forum, but the point is, it's not like everything was great and then the World Economic Forum came along and then everything's been bad and sinister. The World Economic Forum is itself following in the footsteps of what you call roundtable groups yes. and so on. So can you situate it in recent history? Yes. I mean, it was basically the Rhodes Foundation, the Rhodes Society that developed these roundtable groups. They began spinning off of the roundtable society in the early 20th century. And so we had, for example, the Royal Institute of International Affairs or Chatham House was founded in, I think, 1920 or 21. And then, of course, its American counterpart, the Council on Foreign Relations, was spun off. And then the Bilderberg Group and then the Club of Rome and then the World Economic Forum and then the Trilateral Commission. It turns out they all follow the same formula the Rhodes Society formula, they effectively have at least a part of their agenda is clandestine. It's openly clandestine, if you will. They use the Chatham House rule, which is a house, it's a rule of secrecy regarding what is said and who says it in a particular meeting. So you can go to a, one of the meetings of these groups and you can say the ideas that were promulgated at the meeting, but you can't say who said them and you couldn't say basically where you heard it. So this was the way they shrouded much of their agenda in secrecy. And it turns out that all these groups, the World Economic Forum being just one of the recent incarnations, 1971, it was founded as the European Management Forum. It turns out they all have very similar agenda, if not the exact same agenda, which is a global economic order without national control. Basically, they've been after globalism for decades. And the World Economic Forum's agenda really just flows from these other organizations. The Chatham House Group was first basically promoting British imperialism and so forth, but then 
they all sort of switched into a multilateral, multicultural globalism. And that's what they've been promoting ever since. So I show not only this kind of genetic relationship between these organizations, but also the massive overlap of members in these organizations. They're all in the same, all these people are in all these different organizations simultaneously, or if not simultaneously, then, you know, one after the other successively. So we're looking at like this huge incestuous pool of globalists, really. It's really quite remarkable. I like about your book, something that we mentioned in the last episode, which is that it doesn't end with, so there, and now I've told you about what's going on. I hope you enjoyed my book. <laughs> like what? I'll be sitting here, you know, you read this book and your face is pale as a ghost. <laughs> That's all you have to say to me? So at the end you have, as I said, we did talk about this a little bit last time. So I'm not going to, we're not going to revisit it. We're going to tell people to get the book, but you actually do say, look, here's what we do. Here are some ideas. Here's how we proceed to try to get these people off our backs. Yeah. So it's not just doom and gloom. It's also, and the thing is, I don't know that they actually think this way, but if I were an evil bastard like Klaus Schwab, I would want the general public to be demoralized, to feel helpless, to feel that it's just a, an inevitability that this is all going to come to pass. And so all you can do is just sit back and take it. I encounter a lot of our people who are just in constant despair all the time. Yeah. And I think that's where they want you to be. And they want to suck the joy out of your life. And we just can't let them do that. And so likewise, Absolutely. in your book, you're not doing that. At the end, you're saying, look, there's still a lot more of us than there are of them, basically. Right. And so if we want to stop this, we can stop it. Absolutely. We can absolutely stop it. I won't go into the various points. That's a nine-point plan. And it's not meant to be completely comprehensive. It's all of it I could fit. Basically, the points that I could come up with without consulting like 100 people in a crowdsourced manner. So I call it the grand refusal. So the overarching idea is basically refusal. It isn't like revolution because basically this is a revolution. We're counter-revolutionaries. These are subversive elites that are trying to basically revolutionize the world and we need to resist it we are the actual real resistance to the regime. And it really comes down to a number of points of refusing the agenda. Basically, I would suggest one way to think about it is, even if you don't know who's pulling the strings, you don't know for sure who the puppet masters are. It's really not necessary to fully identify them down to their DNA. All you have to do is cut the strings cut the strings from yourself and they can't pull the strings on you. And that's kind of the premise behind the grand refusal. I like to cut the strings they're using to control you. Just cut them. Yeah. You have a pair of scissors in your hand. You can just use it. So I'm going to, of course, as always, I'll link to the book at tomwoods.com slash 2263. It is The Great Reset and the Struggle for Liberty, Unraveling the Global Agenda by Michael Rechtenwald. So again, tomwoods.com slash 2263. Do you have any particular, I always ask this, I, well, let's say I always should ask this and I sometimes forget, but when somebody comes on who's done a project more or less on his own, I always want to know in what way do you prefer people order the book? Is it okay they just go to Amazon or would you rather they order it through you or what do you prefer? Well, I mean, I prefer that they order it directly from me, although I don't, have any objections to Amazon either. 
I can send signed copies. They are a little more expensive because I've got to handle it and ship it and deal with the whole issue. I have to hire somebody to help me do it. But um, yeah, through my website, michaelrechtenwald.com, you can order signed copies of the hard or softback versions. Or everything is available, of course, on Amazon. There's also a Kindle version up there. So take your pick. If you want to avoid big digital, you can come directly to me. Otherwise, go to Amazon and I won't cry about that. Uh, do you have a page just for this book or, or is it just that when I go to michaelrechtenwald.com, I just see it right on the homepage? It's right on the first page on the left-hand yeah. side. And then also yep. under a page called Buy Signed Copies, it's listed there too. Yeah, okay. So I'll have links to both ways to get it. Tomwoods.com slash 2263. Well, good luck with it, Michael. It's important information and thanks for putting it together. Uh, thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. All right, folks, before we wrap up for today, I want to tell you about something one of my listeners has done, and that is a website called yourmoneystages.com because we all pass through various stages when it comes to our relationship with money. And on this site, you can find a lot of valuable information about building and maintaining your credit, saving money, cutting expenses, all these sorts of topics are covered in detail by a Tom Woodshow listener. So check out yourmoneystages.com. I'll link to it on the show notes page for today. And remember, if you're thinking of starting a website or a blog, I can give you a little bit of a boost out of the gate along with a bunch of other free resources that'll help you get a really, really good start. So before you start that site, check out all the goodies that I can give you at tomwoods.com slash publicity. See you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of the Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.